Hi, this is Christian Kuhn of Urban Village Church in Chicago. Welcome back to this podcast where I weekly reflect on sermons that I will be preaching at Urban Village. And we are in the middle of a very short sermon series called Failing Boldly, and I'll talk more about that uh, and the connection to me in, uh, at the end of the podcast. But first, I want to read to you the passage, the scripture passage that I'll be reflecting on today. This comes from the Gospel of Luke. This is uh, chapter 3, verses 15 through 22. As the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he proclaimed the good news to the people. But Herod, the ruler who had been rebuked by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the evil things that Herod had done, added to them by shutting shutting up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved, with you I am well pleased. May God's blessing be on the reading and living out of this word. So in Chicago, if you live in the Chicago, you probably know pretty well what is the closest CTA train station to where you live. Uh, or if you don't live terribly close to the CTA, you, I'm sure, know what buses go closest to your corner and have a pretty good sense of what those buses are, are like. If you live in the suburbs here, maybe the metro station is the one that you know the best. For where we live here in the South Loop in the city, uh, Roosevelt is uh, the main hub of the South Loop, and also for lots of other folks who are visiting Chicago, too, because often they will get off at the Roosevelt stop and head east to see all the museums here in our area. There was an interesting article that came out about a month ago. Uh, transportation writer for the Chicago Tribune surveyed all of her readers, asking them about CTA stations, which were the best and worst and so on, and Sheridan, which is the, on the north side of Chicago, for those who have been on the red line here and have gone north of Wrigley Field, uh, Sheridan was voted by many as the worst. And the writer talks about the smell of wet wood and soggy corn chips mixed with pigeon guano. And then there were other folks who chimed in about, the, for example, the smelliest station, which was people said was O'Hare. Uh, the prettiest, which is on the Green Line, the Conservatory, Central Park Drive, the coolest ceiling, most clueless riders, and so on and so on. People are voting on different kinds of categories for their uh, station. For me, knowing the Roosevelt station is become pretty clear because I ride it nearly every day. And so whenever I go down to the uh, platform where the train is, I know pretty much exactly where I want to go if I want to get out of the train car, the nearest exit. So, for example, I often will get off at the Lake Street shop in the Loop, which is close to where we have our staff meetings. So I know when I go down the Roosevelt, uh, down the steps of the Roosevelt platform, I know where to stand to get on the particular car so that I will get out closest to the exit. I know when I'm north, on the north side of the city, 
taking the red line down south, I know I want to get in the third car because when I get off on the third car, that again lets me out right at the steps so I don't have to walk uh, any further and saves me the precious 20 seconds or so. So you know your station. You know all of the quirks. You know all of the little tricks. You know the smells of all of these things. Your home station. Well, I thought about that. I reflect on this in my book uh, that just came out called Failing Boldly, hence the connection to this sermon series, uh, about knowing, deeply knowing what your home station is. And as I was reflecting on failure and what we do to respond to failure and to get beyond failure, it struck me that before anything else, all of us need to have a strong sense of what our, in a sense, our faith home station is. And that, I believe, and I've learned this the hard way the last few years, is belovedness. Belovedness. The key to knowing who you are as a child of God, and the key, one of the keys for responding to failure is knowing that belovedness is your home station. That's the thing that you should know more than anything else. But here's the problem that I think many, especially people who have been um, a Christian for quite some time, is that they can say that Jesus loves them, and they can talk about this with their friends, but they don't really truly believe it themselves. Knowing this love, knowing that this love matters more than anything, and that this love is the ultimate defining characteristic of you as a child of God is, I believe, the key to rebounding from and persevering through failure. So let's take a quick look at this passage here from the Gospel of Luke and see how it plays out. Whenever we talk about early stories in the Gospels, especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke, especially Matthew and Luke, when we think about Jesus' early life, understandably, folks will first think about the story that we read at Christmas, Jesus' birth. And of course, it's a very powerful story. But the story that I have been drawn to more and more when thinking about Jesus, especially Jesus' early ministry, is the story of his baptism. So as we look here at this passage, we have a sense that something or maybe someone has compelled Jesus to approach his cousin, John, who is preaching up a storm and is baptizing individuals, that Jesus wants to go through this experience himself perhaps knowing that he would need this experience not only to fulfill all righteousness, which is perhaps his main mission, but also to sustain him throughout his ministry. Jesus knows the need for it, and he intentionally places himself in a position to receive it. Jesus also shows vulnerability. He acknowledges his need for this heavenly blessing and affirmation. And he often reminds his followers of his inability to do anything without God's presence and power. Jesus' awareness of his dependence on God is especially true in the Gospel of John, where Jesus says, Very truly, I tell you, the Son can do nothing on his own, but only what he sees the Father doing. The text that we read here reminds us of the necessity that Jesus felt for having this baptism. He gives us, Jesus gives us a wonderful model of intentionality and vulnerability here. Time and again, Jesus leaves behind large crowds, the sick and the lonely, and goes away to pray and be reminded of who he is and how much he is loved. 
Maybe he needs this reminder too because his life was not always filled with constant accolades and successes. The interesting thing about this passage that we read today is the timing of it. We talked in Lent about being in the wilderness, Jesus being immediately driven into the wilderness after his baptism. And I'd like to think that while Jesus is in the wilderness, that Jesus kept hearing this voice that he heard in this baptism. You are my beloved. With you, I am well pleased. You are my beloved. You are my beloved. As Jesus is in the wilderness, facing all kinds of temptations and anxieties and stresses, perhaps he knew he needed this baptism. He needed to hear and know these words deep in his heart. You are my son, the beloved. I especially like how the common English Bible translates this passage. You are my son, whom I dearly love. In you I find happiness. If all of us knew this truth deep in our core, if we used it as a kind of mantra in our daily lives, gosh, don't you think it would help so much in all of the temptations and anxieties and struggles that we face in our own lives, the failures that we inevitably go through when we find ourselves up against challenges and and failing at big and small tasks that we can say to ourselves what God said to Jesus that day, you are my son, whom I dearly love, in you I find happiness. You are my daughter, in whom I dearly love, in you I find happiness. Oh, what if this were our mantra, the thing that we go back to time and time again when we fail? I think, I believe that if this is our faith home station, that we are beloved by God. If that's the thing that is tattooed on our hearts, that's also the thing that helps us through the inevitable moments when we fail. So again, when I say this to you, it may not seem particularly novel. And I also think that because we hear it so often that we either forget it or we don't believe it. We truly don't believe it. Now, why would not we believe this common tenet of the Christian faith that we are loved by God, that we are deeply loved by God. Some may have heard a similar but slightly different message. They may have heard a message like that that has strings attached, where they hear something to the effect of, well, God will love you if you follow all of these commandments. God will love you if you buy into a particular kind of of theology. God will love you if you quit being gay, lesbian, transgender, bisexual. God will love you if you give up uh, all of these bad habits, and so on and so forth. People have heard a message that God's love has small print. Or maybe people don't believe this truly let this be ingrained as their home station, their faith home station, because this statement that we are dearly loved, that in us God finds happiness, just because it's too simplistic. I mean, again, we heard this as a child. 
we heard this growing up going to Sunday school, or it's one of the first things that we heard in our faith, and maybe you're the kind of person who craves theological nuances. You like to explore different kinds of things and take things apart and really ask deep, good questions. And this is all wonderful as parts of our faith. But sometimes we, our home station is the taking things apart and the common questioning. And it is hard for us to buy into something so simplistic that we are deeply, deeply loved, that in us God finds happiness. Again, I'm not saying that we shouldn't ask questions and explore wonderful kinds of theology, but what I am saying is that I believe that our home station has to be our belovedness. Maybe you also don't believe it just because it's old news. Like a little bit similar to it's just too simplistic. It's something I've heard over and over and over again. Not unlike when you get on an airplane and the flight attendants are up front and they go through all the safety features. And of course, if you've flown even just a couple times or more, you've heard this all the time. And so as you look around, as you're on the flight, no one, hardly anyone anyway, is paying attention. They are either getting that last little bit of information off of their phones or they're already taking a nap or maybe they're flipping through the flight magazine. But I've heard it before. I know about the oxygen mask. I know that my seat is a flotation device. I know all these things. The flight attendants are giving us life-saving news, but again, I've heard it all before. I don't need it. Or it's kind of somewhere in the back of my mind. So that might be another reason why our belovedness, which is so foundational to who we are, gets lost. And so we need to be told time and time again. In the book, I sometimes feared that I wrote about or quoted movies a little too often because often when I'm reflecting on something that I want to say or write, movie clips pop into my mind. I don't know why this is. I don't know if it's just the way my brain works. I don't know if all people think this way. It's the way I think. And sometimes, as you know, of course, I will use those clips, but sometimes I'll think of a movie clip or a scene and I'll think, you know, I think I just used a movie scene last week. I should probably uh, spread out the different kinds of illustrations that I use. But one scene that I used in my book that I'm glad I did comes from the movie Goodwill Hunting. I'll put a link up to this on the Podbean page. I, I thought about using it uh, in my sermon uh, when I preach this live, but there's the language is just a little bit too R-rated for me to use it. Uh, so for those who click on it, just be aware of that. But the scene unfolds this way. There, For those who don't know, a lot of the movie centers around a young man named Will Hunting who had a very challenging, even abusive childhood, went from foster home to foster home. And he has finally found a therapist named Sean who he clicks with. And so this is a scene near the end of the movie. And Sean finally had gotten a hold of a folder that detailed all of the abuses that Sean went through as a child. And Will, after having some conversation, or Sean, after having some conversation with Will, holds up the folder and says, I don't know a lot, but you see this. And then he holds up the folder and he says, it's not your fault. And he says this nine more times. I counted. It's not your fault. Now, initially, Will responds by hearing, it's not your fault. The fact that you were abused is not your fault. Will responds with saying, I, I know. 
I know. Because maybe he's heard this before. And so his initial reaction is, that's old news. I know it's not my fault. But Sean continues to say it. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. And Will pushes back and gets angry because he's beginning to touch on a nerve. He's beginning to get at the core of maybe who Will is. And so after the 10th time that Sean says, it's not your fault, Will breaks down and gives Sean a hug and just starts weeping. And maybe for the first time in his life, it really hit home. It wasn't his fault, but it needed to be said over and over and over again for him to really begin to believe it. I have been guilty myself of hearing this so often that God loves you, that Jesus loves you. It's like, I know, I know, I know. I want the new shiny theological thing to begin to hear and explore, but in my own uh, struggles while planting this church, especially the last two, three, four years, it's finally become clear to me. After all these years of being a religious professional, it took some time for this basic truth to really hit home. Part of the process for me to really begin to understand the power of this happened, and I think I've shared this story before, but Again, it's also in the book, and it's just something that always sticks with me. In the early days of Urban Village, and I met with a young man named Phoenician. We had been uh, emailing lots of different folks. Um, I was emailing people who had belonged to my fraternity, uh, not on my college campus, but I'd gotten some names and email addresses of others who had been in the same fraternity but in different college campuses. So I just emailed tons of people, blind emails, saying, would you be willing to meet I'm doing this new thing. I'd like to know more about the city. And Phoenician said, yeah, I would. So we met at the Barnes & Noble on the corner of State and Jackson here in Chicago. And there was no room for us in the coffee shop up front. So we had to find our way back into the book stacks. This was a a Starbucks slash Barnes & Noble. So we finally sat down in a section and just Phoenician started telling me a story. He said he's a Chinese American. His parents were Chinese immigrants uh, had gone to church for a while, but really hadn't gone lately. And as I was sharing a little bit about my vision or our vision for the church. And I had said something to the effect as we're talking and as Phoenician is sharing and as I'm listening to him. And I said something like, he just, I said something like, you know, we just want people to know that they're loved by God, no matter where they're coming from. And when I just threw that line out there, I didn't think much about it. But as I said it, I looked at Phoenician and I noticed something, that there was a tear Multiple tears started dripping down Phoenician's cheeks. And that was one of the very first times. Again, I'd been a pastor for a number of years, and yet it finally dawned on me, like, this actually is game-changing news. That a person is truly loved by God. I mean, truly loved by God. And that began... For me, the process to feel it myself, that belovedness is my home station. This fact is not necessarily new to many of you, I know. But as I noted earlier, in moments when we fail in our lives, there are voices inside us 
And I mentioned this last week too, that begin to echo and begin to get at our own self-worth. Like you have failed, therefore you are a failure. And these often are the voices that ring out more than anything else. And this is why I think it's so important for me to share over and over again this very simple yet undeniable and profound truth that you are loved. And may we may respond by saying, yeah, I know. And so we have to say it again. No, you don't understand. You are beloved. And we say, yeah, I know. And then we keep on saying it and we may get angry like, I know already. You've said it. But then maybe we push back because maybe we really don't believe it because we've been told something else. We have failed so many times or we have heard that it's the strings attached or it's just become old news to us and we have not let it sink into the core of our being that you are beloved. And I believe if this sinks into the core of who we are, that there are no strings attached, that you are beloved by God in you. God finds happiness. The same thing that God said to Jesus at his baptism is the same thing that God says to us. You are deeply loved, no strings attached. If we can let this be our home station, the thing that we know deep in our hearts, that we have memorized, we know the nuances of it, and we continue to explore it. If this is the thing that's the true foundation of who we are as children of God, I believe that enables us to risk a bit more in our faith lives and explore, knowing that we might fail, knowing that we might go awry, but we can come back to our home station after our failures and after our risks. We can come back to that. We can come back to God and be filled again and then get on that train and continue on the journey once again. May we know this deep in our hearts, friends. Amen. Well, thank you once again for listening. And let me remind folks about uh, an announcement I made last week that um, probably in about two or three weeks, um, my sermon podcasts will not be coming through... Uh, my own personal Podbean page. Instead, I'm launching a new podcast in um, that complements the book Failing Boldly, um, talking where I'll be interviewing people about their own failures. So I hope that you'll keep listening to those interviews and that podcast. If you want to hear my sermons, I will continue to be uh, recording those, but that will be through the Urban Village uh, Podbean page. So you can get those there. And again, I'll put up links so that you know where to go and where to subscribe for that. Uh, if you live outside of Chicago and want to buy my book, please do so. I would appreciate it. And if you move or move to write a, some kind of review uh, on Amazon, even better. Uh, if you live in Chicago, we're having a book signing and reading on June 22nd. And I'll also put um, info about that on my Podbean page. So until next time, friends, know of your deep belovedness and let that fill you with all that you are. Peace.